What's up, everybody? Just want to tell you how you can come support the show. You can meet us over on Rockfin, rockfin.com forward slash Truezilla. Go get yourself a free account and watch all our videos there. If you want to make a membership account, you can watch all our premium content for free. The Clown Town updates are off the hook. Woo! They're so much fun. All right, if you, you've been missing out if you're not on that. So, uh, yeah, you can also check the audio version of that over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Truezilla. You can get your uh, little Clown Town update over there as well. Um, also, get yourself a Truezilla t-shirt, truezilla.org forward slash right now. He's got the World Economic Forum. It says, you will own nothing and you'll be happy with the 666. Did you guys know there's a 666, right? The World Economic Forum logo? Now you I do. I bet you didn't know that. Now you do. So anyway, I got my uh, Union of the Unwanted shirt on today, baby. You can go to whatever, T-O-U-T-O-W, whatever it is. The U-T-U-O. Oh. Okay, we can do this okay, some yeah, other yeah, time. Yeah, they yeah, can yeah. figure it yeah, out. Yeah. Figure it out. All right, all right, all right. Anyway, guys, enjoy the show. Bam. Welcome to Truezilla. I am Megan sitting here with Scott and Ed. This week, we have Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, the president and CEO of IPAC, the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge, a not-for-profit organization that conducts research in the public's interest. He has a bachelor's degree in zoology, a doctoral degree in ecology, evolution and conservation biology, and a postdoctoral degree in computational molecular biology. He is an author of Cures Versus Profits, Ebola, an evolving story, and the environmental and genetic causes of autism. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jack. Well, thank you so much, Megan, Ed, and Scott, for having me on Truezilla. I'm really excited to be here. And it is quite an honor to yeah, have you. Thank Very you so honored, much for yes. coming on, for sure. We're so excited. I, I look at this episode like we've been talking a lot about what's been going on with the coronavirus and stuff, you know, this entirety since last, you know, since we started actually yeah, last right? June. But, uh, yeah. but, um, you know, I think, you know, as far as like our friends and family members, you know, a lot of people kind of brush us off, you know, as far as people in our world kind of know a lot of the stuff that we know, but then there's a whole lot of people, you know, like, I mean, I can think of my parents who recently got the vaccine, um, you know, things that, that I've learned that are shrugged off. I, I can't wait to share this episode with them. Cause I know that, you know, you know, all these things and, um, and, and we'll be able to explain it way better than I ever can. So um, I'm really excited for that purpose. But I think before we really get into the nuts and bolts of what's going on and just, you know, and all, all of the many things I want to ask you about, um, can you tell us a little bit of your history, just how you got to the point you're at and, uh, and you know, yeah, founding IPAC and whatnot? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, a lot of people see that I publish peer-reviewed research uh, that includes evidence of risks of to vaccines, such as the vaccine vac study that we've done, where the study is showing that there's chronic toxicity of aluminum from vaccines in the pediatric schedule in the first year of life. And they say, what made you change? You, you know, my, my, my children are both vaccinated, okay, uh, on, on the CDC schedule. They're 22 and 20 years old. And what made you change? And, and what I tell them is I've never changed. What, what I, I never worked on vaccines when I was at the universities where I was employed as a faculty member. All that vaccine safety science is sequestered in the CDC or it's shipped overseas. What I did was when I actually started to read vaccine safety science while writing a book, I realized that if I had done that kind of science when I was at the universities, the, the universities where, where I had my positions, that I should have lost my job because it's not good science. It's it's garbage, actually. And I don't say that lightly. I say that after 
years of experience in designing clinical trials, designing retrospective studies, years of experience in data analysis. Um, it's not what I thought it was. And so I didn't change. I just remained a scientist. And I think anybody who is a scientist who thinks that they know what's going on with vaccine safety science really should take a look at themselves. A good example of that is uh, are the studies on vaccines and autism, right? And they, the, the common uh, claim is that there's no study that has ever shown and there is no link between vaccines and autism. Well, obviously, that's a negative knowledge claim. And to, you can't prove a negative, first of all, right? But more than that, much more than that, I read all the studies that uh, were conducted on vaccines and autism, and not a single study was sufficiently powered except one. There was one study out of all the studies that was, meaning that it was large enough, it had a large enough sample size to be able to detect an association between vaccines and autism if it was really there. Now, that's a very technical thing. You have to understand what it means. You have to have a large enough sample size to find a small difference. Well, that's why when you do clinical trials, you have to have thousands of patients, right? You have to have tens of thousands of patients in clinical trials for drugs. So I simply was you know, going about my life writing books, <laughs> the ones that you mentioned. Uh, it's actually during the book, uh, Cures Versus Profits. I had finished the, the book itself. And I, at the last minute, I decided to add a chapter on vaccines. I thought it was going to be easy. Hey, everybody knows vaccines saved millions of lives, right? And, and when I, I wrote that chapter, I'm like, there's not a lot here. There's got to be more to it. And then I, I remembered the story about Andrew Wakefield and autism. and what, So I needed an update. I had to go back and read everything. And so, yeah, it was pretty clear that the science is not what they say it is when it comes to vaccine safety science. And you'll hear people say, well, correlation doesn't equal causation. There's a very technical reason why they get to get away with saying that, because the only kinds of studies that are done on the important problems of vaccine safety science for long-term safety are correlation studies. They don't do long-term randomized clinical trials. So we will never know causality. And that's where it's really kind of unfair to the public. We deserve to know what the long-term consequences of vaccines are. Certainly, awesome. certainly. Yeah, we totally agree. And I think, you know, one of the things you brought up there is um, aluminum. Aluminum is, is one of the main drivers of vaccine injury, in my opinion. Um, could you shed a little bit of light on that? And then for also mercury, I guess, would be, uh, be in that same category. Yeah, so mercury was actually brought in as a preservative. Um, it's because there were some kids when you had when they moved from single dose vials to multi-dose vials, there were some kids that developed fungal infections in their brain because the healthcare workers would leave the vial out, you know, on the counter between patients. You're supposed to, when you have a multi-dose vial, you're supposed to take it out of the refrigerator, draw the sample, you know, draw the dose and put it in the in the patient and actually supposed to put it back in the refrigerator before you deliver the dose. But if you are a sloppy healthcare worker and you leave it out on the counter all, all day, um, you can get fungal growth uh, because you, you, you've taken a, a needle, it's swimming around in the air, and then you put it in the sample, you can contaminate it. Uh, so they added thimerosal, which is 50% ethyl mercury by, by weight, as a preservative, right? Now thimerosal is very heavy, and the healthcare workers are instructed to shake up the vial. And if they don't shake it up enough and disperse it, then there's the kid that gets the last dose of the vaccine will get the highest dose of mercury, right? So there's, there's risks like this involved. Now, we know that mercury causes neurodevelopmental disorders, methylmercury, and the argument is, 
yeah, but it's a different form of mercury, et cetera, et cetera. No study has shown these arguments. Um, but in actuality, there's a great study by Burbacher in, 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 uh, in monkeys that showed that when you inject dimerosol or if you inject um, uh, ethyl mercury from dimerosol and you inject methyl mercury, the organic mercury it, from thimerosal goes to the brain more readily and it stays in the body and in the brain longer in terms of the half-life. So there's good, robust science that shows that there's a potential problem. And we've heard hundreds of parents say, my child was on making their neurodevelopmental track. No, there's no problem. Got a, a mercury-containing vaccine. Boom, and that's when they hit, right? So th that, out of an abundance of caution, right, after all the evidence was looked at, the CDC and the FDA said, let's try to take mercury out of most of the most of the vaccines for kids, but they shipped overseas. We're still, our companies are still shipping overseas the same vaccines with mercury in them. Um, and so they left mercury in the flu vaccine. So like 60 or 70% of the flu vaccines that are out there still have thimerosal in them. And, and the problem with that is that thimerosal actually also inhibits a protein that, that called ERAP1. And ERAP1 is actually a protein that helps our immune systems fold the proteins properly so we can respond to things like respiratory viruses. And Ben Cowling out of, out of Hong Kong showed exquisitely uh, in a very well-designed study that people that got thimerosal-containing vaccines had a higher risk of getting a non-influenza virus infection that year or, the, or for the following two years. So if you're impairing your immune system with dimerosol, with the flu, how many people have said, I, I got the flu shot and then I had the worst flu I ever had in my yeah, life? Probably, did, mm -hmm. probably didn't have influenza, right? So when you ask about aluminum, aluminum is, is included in vaccines in the pediatric schedule, so they don't have to use so much of the antigen that keeps the vaccine cost down instead of using a lot of the protein. Um, uh, because it's a... It stimulates the immune system. It's supposed it's an adjuvant. It's supposed to make the immune system more reactive. Um, but we also know if you look at the animal studies that are out there, the mouse studies and the rat studies, that when pharmaceutical companies want to develop a drug for asthma or allergic rhinitis or for lupus or these kinds of things, they want to test out a drug, they'll take an animal and they'll inject it with aluminum hydroxide. And they'll expose it to the antigen that causes these autoimmune diseases, conditions. It's, aluminum hydroxide is the exact same molecule. It's the exact same formula that's used in, in vaccines as an adjuvant. And, you know, if you just take a regular mouse off the shelf that is not predisposed to autoimmunity, you have to use 10, 15, 20,000 times the dose. So the argument is it's not a problem. But what I did is in my, in my analysis, I looked at the animal's that had a genetic predisposition to asthma. They were made that way. They're designed to have predisposition to asthma. And then you get by with like five times the dose. Okay, so in the, in the pediatric of a single dose, in, in the pediatric schedule, these kids are getting 72 shots by the time that they're yeah. um, 16. About 60% of them contain aluminum. So they're getting quite a large number of successive shots of aluminum. And this, no, in my mind, there's no doubt that this is why we have such chronic illness among our kids. We have, you know, record ADHD, record um, neurodevelopmental tics, uh, speech apraxia, all these problems, learning disabilities. Um, 
And in my study with the data out of Oregon, Paul Thomas's mm-hmm. practice, yes. right? Um, my analysis uh, with him, my study with him, uh, this is an IPAC project. We analyzed the data from um, 561 kids who were unvaccinated over a 10-year period uh, compared to 2,400 or so kids that were vaccinated. We found zero ADHD in the unvaccinated mm. over 10 years. So you don't have to be a G whiz statistician to say, yeah, there's a problem with a, a aluminum containing vaccines. There's a problem with vaccines in particular around things like ADHD. And the pharmaceutical companies, I'm sure, don't want this to become common knowledge because they make so much money from the drugs to, yeah. you know, basically the the the, meta, the amphetamines derivatives that they use um, uh, that are given to kids. There's so many kids on these drugs. Um, and kids get used to taking pills and, you know, they, 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 their entire attitude towards wellness changes. Wellness is something I don't feel right unless I have a pill. And, and that's not right. You should, sunshine can make you feel good and exercise and time with friends and, you know, get into an argument and winning with some, you know, <laughs> right. These things can make you feel good. So, yeah. Anyway, so so yeah, I've always had it kind of explained to me as like the the aluminum. It's you don't know which kid's gonna hit that overload point of the toxicity, but you know some some kids might be predisposed, and then it's this amount. Some some kids it takes more, but you know the, the fact is they're getting they've never tested the entire schedule. So we, right. the amount of aluminum that's getting put in these kids, and yeah, and it's it's insane. But so so one of the things I wanted to kind of get into maybe before we really deep dive into uh to covid and vaccines and all that is um one of the things i've i've quoted myself many times i've said you know there's before they ever came out with this coronavirus vaccine they were testing to make a coronavirus vaccine for 17 years before that and mm-hmm. and these tests they had all sorts of problems like many ferrets died in these tests and it's mm-hmm. it's what a term you coined as uh, pathogenic priming. They, they used they called it immunity enhancement, which is a terrible disease name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible way of saying it. Could you kind of explain what happened with these trials? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea of having a coronavirus vaccine is, you know, it's a it's a dream come true if you're a vaccine maker because coronaviruses cause the common cold. I mean, my gosh, if you can make a vaccine for the common cold, you've hit the jackpot. Who wouldn't want it, right? So it's like the cure for the common cold is kind of like a common expression uh, in medical circles. It's like the best thing since sliced bread. It's that common in, in thinking that it would be really great. Uh, in reality, common cold is just kind of a nuisance, right? It's just a minor, minor cold, uh, minor, minor disorder. Uh, and so... Uh, with the SARS virus that came out of China, the, the, this before SARS-CoV-2, right? um, 2003, about 2003, there were attempts to make a SARS virus. And what they found is when they vaccinated animals like ferrets against it, that the animals actually, when they, they, they would vaccinate the animals and then they would challenge them with exposure to the wild type SARS, that the animals, especially the older ones, tended to die. They tended to have more severe COVID symptoms, what we now call COVID. They would have more severe disease, and it was called immune enhancement. And this had been seen before in respiratory syncytial virus studies in the 1960s, where they they used to do human trials in children, and they would say, well, we, we're going to put an end to RSV with an RSV virus vaccine. What we're going to do is we're going to vaccinate some kids, 
and then expose them to the wild type virus. Well, all the kids on the trial, they had to go to the hospital and three of them died. And that's where the concept disease enhancement came from because says, wow, for some reason, this vaccine is making the disease worse. The symptoms are more serious. They end up with serious, uh, serious respiratory illness um, and illness in other organs other than the respiratory, the liver, hepatitis, you know, um, the spleen issues, kidney issues. Um, and so it seemed like it was, it was going to be a long time before we, we got this. And then they, when Middle Eastern respiratory virus came around, same thing happened. They, they, they studied rats and, and ferrets and they found that, hey, there's a, there's a serious problem. So once they also at the same time then um, had accidentally released SARS to the human population something like a dozen times in, in 10 years. It escaped you know, the, the laboratory in China so many times that we needed a moratorium on research in the lab because these unsafe viruses, right? So the, the alleged death rate from SARS is 10 times that of SARS-CoV-2, right? And that's that stopped it in its tracks. I mean, if you have a virus that kills all of its hosts or 10% of its hosts, it's going to drop dead. The virus is going to fall out because it's killing too many people or, or animals. Um, so in a way, um, that was self-regulating. And so there was a moratorium on research, especially gain of function, because when it was found out that there were laboratories that were actually trying to make an already deadly virus more deadly, you know, and it was escaping the laboratory, then what? Okay, so this Wuhan Institute for Virology uh, was conducting research in viruses. The Nanjing Command uh, apparently was conducting some type of research with viruses because they, they had a sequence of SARS-CoV uh, relatives in SARS-CoV-2. And so the question becomes, you know, or became, you know, if, if there are people in China that are dying at this high rate, in Wuhan in particular, why is it so deadly there? But then when, once it gets out of the, the Wuhan province into the rest of the China, it's not so deadly. And then once it gets to Japan and then the United States and around the rest of which just doesn't seem to be as deadly as we thought it was, what's going on? And I put forward four hypotheses. The first hypothesis was that perhaps the Chinese had actually done millions of vaccine doses recently to that population. In fact, in December of 2019, China activated a nationwide mandatory vaccination program for against influenza. Wow. And 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 I thought, well, perhaps they slipped in a, a, a SARS or SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. And so that these People in China were actually in Wuhan, in particular. Then uh, um, in the, in the uh, uh, Wuhan's uh, in, in the province in which New Wuhan is found, uh, is, maybe they did millions of doses of some vaccine, and that primed the people to become more ill at once. Just just like in the animal trials, it made perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And um, I still believe that that's a possibility. I, I believe it's possible that part of the problem with the death rates in, chi in China wasn't just that they didn't know what they were dealing with. It, it's that, the, the, that there was some either prior exposure from a vaccine or the routine exposure to these kinds of coronaviruses because they are found in China. They do come from ant bats in China. Um, and it is certainly plausible that this SARS-CoV-2 ancestor tried to enter the Chinese population many, many, many times, but it was and it wasn't such a big problem, or it was so deadly it killed people, um, and uh, you know it, it died out. Like I said, so 
The other hypothesis was, well, maybe it was manipulated in the laboratory uh, with specific components being added to the virus to make it more deadly. We know that this kind of thing was going on with other viruses, so why not, right? And I postulated that. <laughs> Another possibility was that they were trying to make it more able to infect human cells in the lab to be able to study it so that they could make a vaccine, right? Because you have to have a thing that grows in human cells to know whether it's working, right? And so that would be a serial passage from, from human tissue to human tissue to human tissue. You're getting um, viruses that survive better and better and better and reproduce better and better. Perhaps that's how it developed the ability to... That's kind of was kind of Chris Redfield's theory, right? That uh, he yeah. just put forth, yeah, the ex-director at uh, CDC. Uh, yeah, yeah. Robert I mean... The, 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 Sorry, right, so they... The, the ACE2 receptor ability is profoundly good. And, and even, yeah, Redfield came out and yeah. said, listen, it just, it binds too, too well. It's too quick. There hasn't been enough time. And Fauci said, no, 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 it was probably earlier in the Chinese population, but we're talking a difference of months, not years, right? So when I looked at the sequences and I analyzed the sequences, I had thought that I found a pea shuttle a vector sequence in the virus itself. And I read the original uh, sequence that was published. And the pea shuttle is routinely used to actually modify viruses. So I thought I had a smoking gun. That's why I went on Del Big Tree's show, The High Wire, and said, hey guys, you know, the most likely hypothesis is this, but it was still a hypothesis. I made it perfectly clear. And four days later, after analyzing more data, I ruled out that particular hypothesis. So I, I had found that the pea shuttle was, was uh, actually a spike protein. Um, what I thought was pea shuttle was actually spike protein. And there were pea shuttle elements that were in use in, in, to change the virus for cancer research purposes nearby. So there's no doubt that there was some manipulation of the virus somewhere in China. Sure. But this specific one that people are, were being pulled out of people's lungs, I couldn't nail down a vector. That, that, that would have been like a home run. Like, wow, we found the actual pea shuttle. Um, and then, of course, the other hypothesis is that it somehow came out of the wet market of Wuhan, the, the just so story that they that they give us. Um, and I agree that with the assessment that the probability that that particular market was the source of this, when the Wuhan Institute for Raleigh was just right next door, you know, wow. is is profoundly it's it's diminishingly small that that's a, a coincidence. Um, and the, the patient zero was most likely a female. A laboratory worker whose face was taken off of the website. She's gone missing and this kind of thing. So the World Health Organization a year later goes in yeah. and right, they can't rule it out. And they come out exactly where I was a year before. Okay. And how much money did they spend at the World Health Organization? And how many hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people, you know, had to suffer waiting for this announcement that yeah, could still be out of the lab is most likely hypothesis is a laboratory escape. Mm -hmm. Well, we already kind of knew that. That's why we had the gain of function, a moratorium, right? So yeah. I'm not backing away from the um, laboratory escape hypothesis that I posed early. Um, and, and I'm glad that I had the chance to, you know, rule out, I think, the manipulation. There are other people that disagree with me. Um, 
uh, Luc Montagnier, he's a, um, a Nobel Prize winning scientist that worked in HIV. He's convinced that there are elements that he recognizes in the sequence of the virus that point clearly to some manipulation of addition of HIV type uh, right. subsequences. But I, I've analyzed those subsequences. And the interesting thing is, and I, I took a colleague, Dr. Merrill Nash, through this exercise. I should have done it live or I should have done it you know, in a podcast. If you just, if I asked you right now to randomly choose five letters that corresponded to amino acids, uh, five, just five random letters. If you say choose random numbers between one and 20, and I had signed the amino acid letters to those 20 letters, to those 20 numbers that I generated at random. If we did this together right now and we yeah. randomly generated them, I could find matches to HIV, no problem. Mm. Does that mean that there's some magical configuration of what would say? No, it's just by chance. And Luke knows about this. But the reason why I don't think that Luke's hypothesis, or Dr. Montagnier, I should say, the reason why Dr. Montagnier's um, hypothesis, I think, is incorrect is, is because he he pointed to what he called were inserts. And everybody that uses, and when they talk about the virus and they talk about inserts, it, it, it assigns a particular polarity. It says, here's SARS in the wild. And then somebody took SARS over here and then they added to it. That's an insert. In evolutionary biology, we have to understand who came first, SARS-CoV-2 or SARS, to know the polarity. Maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's a deletion. And in one of Dr. Montagnier's inserts, half of it clearly, at least the published sequence data, clearly looked like it comes from a pangolin. But he didn't know that. So there is recombination and cross-infection. But that happens in the lab as well. So if they're housing pangolins, if they're housing mice, if they're housing humans, or pangolin tissue, because it's easier to grow in pangolin, you can get recombination. One of the things about the biology, the SARS-CoV-2 and the SARS viruses, is you get two reads off of the gene for the spike protein. You get S1, and then you get the full S protein. And if you have two different viruses in the same cell, they'll recombine. So you'll get different combinations of the, the proteins into, so you get new viruses this way. Um, and so it's a fascinating, but the virology, the molecular biology, the virology is fascinating, right? Here we're sitting there arguing for in the early months when we should have all been focused on, okay, what's the most important thing here? At the same time that I was doing that, I had done simulations. And in my simulations, I showed that without a vaccine, we could shut down in the United States by locking down, a hard lockdown. Everybody stay home for two weeks. We could, we could have brought this to a, a truncated end voluntarily. Everybody stay home for two weeks, take a two-week vacation, national vacation. Stay home with your kids. And we're going to make all the antivirals that my work against this over-the-counter readily available. Those are the two factors that were necessary, okay? And I still think that that's something that could potentially be done, although we do not have the stomach as because, because it's, it was politicized. I railed against that. I, I, how dare you politicize this issue? It's, how dare you commoditize human health? How dare you politicize public health? Um, no politician anywhere should have anything to say about public health. And I think we need to dismantle the current public health system completely. But yeah, and, and, and so what I want to say is really good news is that things like Pepsid and other um, over-the-counter medicines for stomach ailments actually reduce uh, the mortality by like 25% uh, of, of coronavirus. And that's because they shut down the eosinophilic uh, infiltration. Um, 
the, the, the treatments that are available that are coming out, we won the argument on ivermectin, but not enough people know it, right? So Pierre Corey and the FLCC, C frontline doctors actually convinced NIH to change from not enough evidence for to not enough evidence for against go talk to your doctor. So they're, they're and then hydroxychloroquine. And I just found out that there's some nasal sprays, nitrous oxide of all things. Mm. There's a company in British Columbia. This is fascinating. The best news that I can share with you guys is that it's a phase two clinical trial that went through 95% reduction clearance, complete clearance of the virus in 95% of the people, regardless of what stage of coronavirus they're at. And it's a nasal spray. So that's now it's going to phase three in the UK, which means that it's going to be larger randomized prospective clinical trial. That's a game changer right there. So if we can all just grab nasal spray and we can take some stomach ailment treatment to shut down the eosinophilia, then this, everybody walks, everybody skates from coronavirus. It would be fascinating if that were true, regardless of whether you're for or against vaccines, that's a good thing, right? I do attribute the hundreds of thousands of deaths to the denial of the efficacy of the treatments. Mm-hmm. It's really 100% clear to me that people, look, you know, I know somebody in Michigan, she's coming up to 80 years old and she tested positive. And when she was tested positive, her husband was in the car with her. He tested negative. They were in the house together for months, for the whole year, right? Yeah, they went out from time to time. So it's possible one of them picked something up, but he tested negative. So she was most likely a false positive. And she was told, go home for 10 days and see if you're sick enough to go to the emergency room. That's Fauci medicine. That's Fauci medicine. Go home and see if you're sick enough. When in the world did medicine become so cruel to say, you know, nothing about treatment, nothing about how do you ameliorate the symptoms or take some supplements or have some chicken soup or something, you know, um, just even if you have flu, go get your rest. They don't say that. Go, go get rest. No, she said you're asymptomatic. Let's see if you develop, you become so sick, you need emergency care. Well, by the time that those people develop emergency care, if it's not COVID, then they have really intense bacterial pneumonia. Or if it's not COVID, they have some other kind of pneumonia, right? Mm-hmm. And so then they get they all get treated for COVID. They don't get treated for you know for the right disease. And um, this is uh, what history is going to say about allopathy and what about Dr. Fauci is is not pleasant. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have died unnecessarily, and it's attributed to the COVID virus. It's not. It's it's before COVID, right? Allopathic medicine errors in medicine, medical errors, were the third leading cause of death in the United States. When now with this mistreatment of COVID or misdiagnosis, I think it's the number one cause of death. 100% so, mm-hmm. yeah, we need to get over this. And that's what tells me that this is all an agenda, all a plan, all a very nefarious thing, because like in order to have this emergency use authorization, you can't have you know, alternative treatments and you have to have states of emergency. And it seems like it's almost like that's the problem reaction solution where the, where the, the vaccine has been the plan all along and we need to create all these circumstances in order to force that situation into existence. I mean, well, also all these, all these treatments we had were pennies on the dollar. There were, there was no money in them. And, yeah. that, and that's, you can easily trace that. And you follow the money, the money's in the vaccine. The money is not in hydroxychloroquine yeah. and ivermectin. And yeah, uh, yeah. so I, th- I think that's easy way. So, so here we are. So we have 17 years of coronavirus vaccines that are killing ferrets and not working. And now we're introducing it to the public on a mass scale. So now let's talk about pathogenic priming and, and what, are, what are we seeing at this time? 
And, and what are the risks to, to someone who's thinking about getting vaccinated? Okay, so what I'd like to do is go back to April of 2020. What I did back then, because I saw that I foresaw that all this was going to happen, I, I said, okay, if there's a problem with the virus, it's something about the proteins in the virus, right? And and knowing what I know at the time about immunology and autoimmunity from studying the aluminum and and, and reading uh, extensively on on uh, immunology for other other purposes. Uh, including research, I was very interested to find uh, how many of the proteins that were in the virus actually had what I, what I now call unsafe epitopes, but they actually had parts of the protein that matched human protein, but more than just matched. A lot of people that go into autoimmune studies um, just look at the match. They do a blast and they do comparison. They say, wow, look at matches. It's really a potential problem. But I didn't. The first thing I did was I found in the viral proteins, all the parts of the proteins that were likely to cause an immune reaction, that they're called immunogenic. They actually cause a illicit immune response in the B cells and B cell production. So the immune response goes far enough to get memory B cells. And, and I used a piece of software that uses a pretty sophisticated prediction algorithm. And so you go to all the all the proteins in the SARS-CoV-2 virus, every single one of them had an immunogenic epitope except one. And out of all of those that had an immunogenic epitope, at least one immunogenic epitope, all of them matched some human proteins. And that means that every, every single auto, uh, immunogenic epitope that existed in the virus could potentially cause autoimmunity in someone if they had a mutation that caused their protein to be just a little bit more similar to the virus. We're not all genetic clones of each other, right? So I might react because of this uh, viral epitope. You might react because of that. I might not react at all. Some, a third person might not react at all. So there's a, a, a subpopulation in the human population that's more susceptible to getting some form of autoimmune reaction. Now, that doesn't mean a permanent autoimmune reaction. I think most of the diseases that's caused by viruses, when you get a serious virus infection, is because of this similarity of the epitopes between viruses and humans, and your immune system gets sick and it attacks part of your tissue, okay? Your immune system actually gets disrupted. Now, a third of the proteins that are potentially targeted by our own autoantibodies auto were immune system proteins. So that's a fascinating thing about SARS-CoV-2 is that if you have autoimmunity, a third of, from SARS-CoV-2, one third of the time, it's going to be something that disrupts your immune response in general, I mean, to the virus and to anything else. So um, in this way, I was very, very concerned. And I wrote this paper and, and published all the results, published all the immune epitopes right down to the sequence, made it available to everyone. I have no financial interest in vaccines. I have no financial interest in antivirals. I have no financial interest in any way related to disease, okay? Um, Moderna came out and said, here's our spike protein. They took the wild type spike protein and they ignored the fact that there was knowledge about potential autoreactive antibodies that could be produced to their spike protein. One of the spike protein uh, predictors that I made is actually folostatin-1-like protein. Folostatin is a protein that women use to regulate their uh, menstrual cycle. Mm. And now we're hearing reports of women that have been getting the vaccine that have disruption of their menstrual cycle. So arguably, 
in retrospect, it's clear that my result, not me, I didn't say that this was going to happen, but it, it, I tended not to do that. I, I, I said, here are all the tissues, including the immune systems where there could be a problem. I didn't say, you know, like a crystal ball, it's therefore going to lead to mental cycle issues. But in retrospect, you can see that that if you have autoimmunity and follistatin, it's going to disrupt your normal menstrual cycle. So women that are on a pill, they start bleeding. The women that haven't, you know, had their cycle, they start bleeding. Um, they, 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 the women who uh, are not on the pill, they start bleeding in the middle of their cycle, out of time and things like that. So, and, and there's other proteins as well. I'm not going to go deep in the, into the weeds on what proteins might be disrupted by either infection or injection. That's important that pathogenic priming could involve either an initial exposure through a vaccine or through an injection. The difference is a vaccination program against SARS-CoV-2, which has a basic reproductive number of uh, what, 2.6, you basically have to vaccinate everybody in the population to achieve herd immunity. And people that know anything about this, they're, they're scratching their head saying, oh, wait a minute, I thought it had 95% efficacy. But that's a problem because they took out the patients that developed COVID after the first dose. And there were more patients that, de that developed COVID after the first dose from the vaccine than from the placebo. So when you do the math, the efficacy is only 75%. So that pushes that curve for vaccine coverage at 100%. And further, when they looked at the efficacy outcome in the clinical trials, they didn't look at the uh, prevention of transmission, which is what all the math that's done that relates the vaccine efficacy to vaccine coverage. They used, well, these people weren't hospitalized, which is a proxy outcome. And so we're not even on the right curve. We're not even in the right ballpark doing the math in terms of vaccine coverage. So when Fauci comes out and says you need 60% coverage, and then he changes it to 90%. He changes it to 90% because the first time he says 60%, somebody touched him on the shoulder and said, wait a minute, we're really not at 95%. It's more like 100%. You got to up that. So he just pulled 90% out of the air. But the story is, is that even if we vaccinate 100% of the people, which is not going to happen in the United States, you're still not going to get herd immunity. That's the, that's the, that's the terrible disaster here. So we have to bring on treatments. The UK has figured this out because of all of the reports of the problems with blood clots in the brain and so on, that they're just not going to get the vaccine uptake that they need. So now they're starting to talk about uh, treatment efficacy. And the same thing is going to happen to us as well. I think there's going to be a, a time in the near future when treatments are brought on board and they're just trying to figure out a way to do it and let Fauci save face. And I don't care if Fauci saves face. I, for all I care, he can retire and go off to the sunset. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a devastating truth that the people who were not given treatment were allowed to develop high viremia and were primed for autoimmunity the next time they see the vaccine or the virus or when they take the vaccine. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people that, 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 that have had the, vi the, the, the virus when they get vaccinated. These are where the deaths are coming from, uh, for the most part, in this terrible um, debacle of, of, of public health. So there's a couple of things I, I wanted to ask that about what you just shared. So the first thing is uh, uh, we kind of talked to a few folks uh, saying, hey, we're going on with Dr. James Lines-Weiler. Is there any questions you want us to ask? And uh, pretty much everybody wanted us to ask that specific question was about the, the menstrual cycle concerns that are all coming out. Um, you know, could, I've heard issues like women with who are menopausal having their periods again, like women that are on their periods having positive pregnancy tests, you know, really weird stuff. And then the other one that was really kind of out, out there is just it. Uh, 
women who have not been vaccinated, but just in the proximity of other women who have been vaccinated and kind of the concept of viral shedding. And then in my research in that, you know, there's very, uh, you know, there's very, uh, controversial opinions one way or the other, whether that's even a thing or that's, if that's just conspiracy theory or not, you know, that concept yeah. of viral shedding. And I was wondering if maybe you uh, could offer some insight into that. And maybe yeah. if the MRNA platform itself is, is a, a unique concern in that regard as well. Okay. So that's a great question. And it is timely. Um, the first thing that I want to do is I want to encourage people to think in terms of complex causality, right? We often just want the simplest explanation. Like parsimony is our guide to the truth, but it's not. If it were that way, then the giraffe, for instance, would not have a nerve that went all the way up its neck and all the way back down again, right? That's that. It's part. Nature doesn't always find the most parsimonious solution. Um, but in terms of causality, right? We put put together everything that we've been told. We've been told that if you're vaccinated you can still become infected. We've been told if you're vaccinated, you can still become infected and you might still be able to transmit. So that sounds like asymptomatic transmission of a wild type virus in present in a person who's been vaccinated where the symptoms have been suppressed. Well, those symptoms are supposed to be there to tell you to stay home and not be a jackhole and infect everybody around you, right? And so, um, the most part, the most realistic explanation, biologically realistic explanation, is that people are acquiring um, an infection. They themselves, if they're not vaccinating at all in their life, don't they don't have Th2 skewed immune systems, right? So that they can handle the uh, the infection that comes to them, probably with the complement factor in the innate immunity. But then if they develop these weird symptoms, it doesn't, they're not exonerated from an infection-based priming towards autoimmunity. This may be the second or third time that they've seen coronavirus, right? So it's been around long enough. So um, in terms of the actual viral mRNA coming back out of a person and infecting, I know of no data and I'm sorry to say, I know of no data, but I also know of no study that has shown that the mRNA itself can re-encapsulate in an exosome or something from the body and then can be shed through the skin or shed by transmission. Um, <clears throat> but I do, I do know that the RNAs travel throughout the body. You know, the studies that have been shown with mRNA technology for influenza uh, attempts at influenza vaccines uh, that that it can travel all the way through the body, including the brain. So it, I'm not going to say that it, we can't rule it out, but I am going to say that it's highly unlikely that you're shedding vaccine-type mRNA because the rest of the constituent proteins that are there that enable the actual production of a viable virus, they're taken out. They're not, they're just not, they're just not there. So uh, I would have to say that it's a very, very, very remote um, possibility that it's much more likely that the, all the vaccinated people are now susceptible to asymptomatic transmission, just the same way they are with pertussis. Sure. Just the same. If you get a pertussis vaccine, you're not immune to the infection. You can transmit it, and so you could. You, you actually all the all the healthcare workers that are vaccinated against pertussis are at actual risk of transmitting uh, to the infants that they're handling, and so they have to mask around kids. Um, and they want the grandparents to get the pertussis vaccine to protect them. Well, no, it would be nice, right, if they've actually said it was themselves that are at risk because they're the ones that are already vaccinated and can transmit pertussis to, to small infants where it is a risk. 
Yeah. yeah. Awesome. That's great. That's uh, great. I guess another question I had too was, uh, so we talked a little bit about the uh, long-term coronavirus vaccine uh, trials, you know, the 17 years, but I believe that wasn't that the old attenuated virus version and as opposed to the MRA and MRNA technology. Um, have we done any sort of animal trials with MRNA? Or, or and, and what were the results of that? Is it, are we seeing the similar similar things? Right. So um, Pfizer and Moderna uh, both did animal trials late. They first they announced that we're going to skip the animal trials and we're going to go right to the to the um, human trials. And they did. They went to human trials before there's a single data point from any animals that we know of. And when they did that, there was such an uproar. There is such an outcry. You guys have to look for pathogenic priming. You must look for disease enhancement. And, and so they decided to use rhesus macaque monkeys. Now, rhesus macaque monkeys, nobody knows why, but their immune reaction to respiratory viruses is really kind of calm. It's muted. It may be because they travel in troops and in large populations and they see a lot of viruses from a lot of different animals. They're out there in the wild, you know, who knows? But they're unlike ferrets, you know, ferrets have a very human-like kind of overall immune response to viruses. Um, rhesus macaques have kind of a muted response to coronavirus. So they chose rhesus macaque. And when they did the studies, they only looked for, at lung immunopathology. They didn't look for spleen. They may have looked at it, but they didn't publish. Right, spleen, hepatitis, kidney problems, like I talked about, right? Brain that I saw no data point on encephalopathy or encephalitis. Um, when you take the rhesus macaque monkey, you vaccinate them and then expose them to the wild type. Um, they didn't look at, well, one of the studies looked at, at a key cytokine, uh, I think it's TH5. Um, no, IL5, sorry, IL interleukin 5. Um, but, you know, they didn't do the right kind of animal. They didn't look at the off-lung immunopathology. And I th think it was Pfizer that actually removed an outlier animal for some reason. I, I, you know, and so there are already small studies. The studies were small. That's another criticism. So, you know, in reality, the human population is the guinea pig for pathogenic priming. And I think we're going to see um, we have good reason to believe, uh, to expect that the prediction that I made in April, that unless they do adequate animal trials first, that we might actually see pathogenic priming, disease enhancement, and, and, and the mechanisms of autoimmunity manifest themselves. And when people see this happening, it's going to be undeniable. I mean, I think it already is, right? We see the blood clots in the brain, we see the thrombocytopenia, but they, they, the public health strategy for vaccination rollout was all a smoke and mirrors mask of this. They went with the elderly people first. And it, one of the things that I don't like about Western culture is that we really don't care if old people die over 90 years old. And as a population, if it's your own grandparent, yeah, you're gonna really hurt, right? You're a great, great grandparent, but we just kind of expect that it's okay for people over 90 to die. They were gonna die anyway. So, you know, it's easy to say, well, they were going to, they, they had a comorbidity, so it was a comorbidity, because most people who live to 90, if they're in a nursing home, they have some problems, right? So you can say that they died from something else. And then they moved it to the healthcare worker setting, and where they can control the narrative there, too. In fact, uh, I was told by people that work at, at a local hospital, a major, major medical hospital here, um, that they were told, you will not talk about vaccine adverse events in the workplace or you'll be fired. Wow. 
So in the top-down control of the narrative is you want a job, keep your mouth shut, right? But now that they're moving it into the educators, right, then we see, okay, well, wait a minute. How in the world is small-town America going to put up with three deaths of the exact same symptoms and three teachers in the same county? People, small-town America talk within a county level. They know each other. People are family, right? Locally, there's geographic correlation in, in communication networks. And so uh, it, it's come to the point where it's not just social media anymore. It's just word of mouth where people are saying, yeah, I saw the exact same set of symptoms. My uncle died the same way, this kind of thing. So that when it becomes that undeniable that we have a problem, then it's back to the drawing board, I think. Uh, for how we're going to deal with COVID-19 and all things have to come back. I mean, if you have a problem with your car and you go to your mechanic and your mechanic says, listen, I, I've got this, um, I got this new regulation. I can only use screwdrivers to fix anything that's wrong with your car. I can't use the wrenches, <laughs> right? I can't use the wrenches. I, I'm sorry. This is what I have. That's what it's like. You know, pub, all, treatments should and could be a very valuable tool for public health. And, and the immediate reaction is, well, they don't want that because the emergency youth authorization is only partly correct. They got the emergency youth authorization. They already have it. They don't need another one. What they, now it's about market share. Now it's about profit. And that's why I wrote the book, Cures Versus Profit. If they're yeah. holding out on treatment so that you have enough people that need to be vaccinated, to me, that's, that's criminal. That, that goes beyond the pale. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I want to get into kind of, so we're, we're seeing pathogenic priming. I mean, I think we are already. I mean, we have, VAERS has, I think, about 2,500 deaths reported at this point. But, and you alluded to, you know, that if, if you had this virus before, that, it's, that, that could be why you're seeing this. But what about all the people with autoimmune conditions already? Is that going to lead to pathogenic priming as well? Because a lot of people in our country have some kind of autoimmunity already. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, Ed, because I've recently done, I'm doing pathogenic priming 2.0 a year on right now. I'm analyzing um, uh, the literature. I'm analyzing proteins uh, from studies that ask, ask that very question. And it turns out that of the people who got sick of serious COVID-19 or died from COVID-19, 80% of them walked into the infection with autoimmunity against other proteins. So they had lupus or they had, you know, diabetes, and we call them comorbidity. But this is actual clinical data that shows that they had, they walked into it with pre-existing autoimmunity, as opposed to the people who skated and they had mild uh, symptoms, only seven or 8% of them had autoimmunity against uh, common self-antigens they're called, or, or you know, autoreactive targets in our body. Well, what does this mean? It means that the people with autoimmunity are at highest risk. And it turns out the people that are had the most of the people with autoimmunity, if they developed autoimmunity as a result of the vaccination program, as our studies are showing, especially the Vaccinevax study uh, in pediatric population in Oregon, what that means is that the people who the families who tend to get serious reactions from vaccines are also at highest risk of death and disease from coronavirus, especially if they continue to vaccinate. Mm -hmm. And so there's a referendum here. This is a referendum on autoimmunity from vaccines. All the viruses, measles, mumps, rubella, we're studying them for pathogenic priming epitopes now. We're, we're broadening the scope at IPAC. And I have a collection of volunteers that I'm teaching how to do the analysis so we can feed them through our pipeline and come up with a, 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 a genuinely objective assessment about 
the mechanisms of disease being caused by vaccines, not just, yeah, I know there's a problem. I've known it for years. Look, guys, if you're going to have vaccines, take out the unsafe epitopes. That's what I said in April 2020. Take them out. And so the good news is that Pfizer actually, uh, sorry, um, Stanford University published Pfizer's, bless you, Stanford sorry. University. Stanford, Stanford University published uh, Pfizer's spike protein, and and we've had Moderna's spike protein by their description. We know which how they changed it. Just to, to, they added two prolines. They substitute to to make the 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 the, the, the spike protein more stable. The good news is we have those sequences and we're analyzing them for pathogenic priming epitopes, Pfizer versus Moderna. So there's going to be this great study that's coming out of IPAC, and and it has a lot to say, like like which vaccine might have less risk in terms of pathogenic priming if we're in a situation where a vaccine is is something that you choose to do. And so I don't care to influence the market for or against Moderna or Pfizer. I don't care to be involved in that discussion at all. What I want are people to be healthy, uh, generally speaking, and good brains. That's the goal. We want to reduce human pain and suffering so that in the future, as the world becomes more complex, people have good brains to be able to problem solve for themselves. And, uh, you know, we really have to get this public health monkey off of our back. It's terrible. Man. So I'm, I'm going to just put something in my own words here. That's a, this is not coming from uh, Dr. Jack. But, you know, for me, I look at this and I say, you know, if you're a healthy person, the risk of coronavirus being a danger to you is pretty low. So but if you're an unhealthy person and you have autoimmune problems already, the threat of the vaccine can cause a lot of the same problems as the virus itself. So I, to me, I, I don't see a lot of, uh, I'm not helping market the, the, the vaccine right now. No. Right. <laughs> like for me, I just, no, I, I don't see, I, I want, I want a treatment. That, that's what I want. I want a treatment. If I get sick, that's, that's, that's where I come to it. I, I, you know, and, and that's what the data actually shows. So the data show that uh, most people are going to walk away from a coronavirus infection. They might have had some symptoms. May, they may have a high fever uh, without any problem whatsoever. We already know that. And and, and that's exactly right. Now, the, 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 the bias that exists in terms of who's going to get serious COVID-19 or not really truly points to the fact that the number one health issue. The public the number one health priority in our country should not be to vaccinate everyone. It should be to find out how to get the people who have TH2 skewed immune systems to get a TH1, TH2 balance. That should be number one. Whatever that is, if it's a treatment, if it's exercise, if it's sunshine, whatever that is, we really, if it's stopping the vaccination with aluminum, that's what it is. And in just a purely objective assessment, and because I don't have any vested interest in medicine, I don't have any vested interest in, in vaccination, I can say this, I'm not going to lose my job. In fact, if you want to see these kinds of studies done, then people need to check out IPAC pretty seriously because we're taking on other scientists that are leaving academia because they can't make a living there anymore and, and, and be objective scientists. They can't talk in the workplace about what they know full well. They can't do the studies they want to do. I have two people, both of which have a background in epidemiology. They both happen to be female, but they, 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 they want to come to IPAC. And so I would be more than happy to spread our wings around them and just let them fly and give them a platform by which they can do objective science and grow. I don't personally, I don't believe in a growth model for any organization. This is uh, should grow organically. I don't want to be 
I don't want an eye pack in every in every corner. That's not the goal. Mm, sure. You know, right. what, what what we want is just enough objective science to help flip all of allopathic medicine. <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Towards doing objective science again, yeah. right? And, and how do you do that? How do you disconnect the profit motive? One of the things that I learned in 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 my career in doing biomedical research, um, and especially in writing the book Cures Versus Profits, is that the, the the profit motive in medicine homogenizes the options. It simplifies medicine. They 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 find it this the, the most profitable among the most profitable that seems to work, and so they tend to do a cookie cutter model of medicine, and they'll treat the, the next patient with the same symptoms the way they treated the last patient as their best evidence. And we really need to change basically how doctors think completely from the ground up. And the way that we're doing that at IPAC is we actually spun off an LLC called IPAC EDU. Uh, we're teaching the public reason and logic. We're teaching them biology. We're teaching them nutrition. We're teaching them the scientific basis of immunology and so on so that they ha can have a stronger voice in the work in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the in the workplace. They can have a stronger voice in the arena of public health in, in the public forum so that they, they can make the arguments in a coherent and cogent manner. When they talk about genetics, they're gonna know what they're talking about for sure. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm really happy to say that, that IPAC-EDU is exploding. There's, oh. I was just contacted by a professor who's retiring from an, an institution. I won't reveal the institution because he doesn't have his, he doesn't have his uh, retirement completed yet. But he came to me um, and he said, when I retire, there are five courses I wanna teach at IPAC edu that they won't let me teach at this at, the, at this institution right and so we're going to be teaching hundreds of thousands of american citizens the things that they want to know we, we're not interested in accreditation we're not interested in transferring credits to colleges we want to just educate the public and make them so fully um able to discuss right uh, the complexities of the issues that we're dealing with in public health and medicine, that the patient population educates the doctors. We have to do a runaround on allopathic training so that, you know, they're like, where did you get your degree? And I want all my students to say, oh, I don't have a degree. I have a certificate from IPAC EDU and I want that conversation to happen. Right. So I'd much rather set the human mind on fire and, you know, get them really thinking about critical issues that are, matter most to them. And um, it's it's really my life's calling is to is to be I, what, what I've done is I've realized the entire world is my university and it's just I have I, I have the most academic freedom of all the academics that I know it's just wonderful. That's so. fantastic. You know that makes me think I uh, I've been to a, a lot of the medical freedom get-togethers in, in our area and whatnot and there's there's this woman that talks about when she takes her her son to the doctor she brings this. Uh, this book that's like this thick of just information that she's, she's gathered. So when the doctors try to challenge her on vaccines, she just whips it out. She's like, do you know this? And like, you know, you have to school the doctors at this point, you know, you, you I mean, do, you know, yeah, you, you have to, I mean, pick, pick the ones that are doing good science and, and, you know, that will listen to you and, and have a, that good relationship. But in yeah. some cases, not everybody has that option. And the doctors you get is, you know, <laughs> because most of them want to, they, they all want to vaccinate because that, that profit incentive, right. That, that money is there to, to keep, to keep uh, your whole practice vaccinated. So. Oh my gosh. So, so uh, Dr. Paul Thomas and I just published a paper that shows that uh, in a, any given year, 
he has sacrificed a million dollars. His practice has sacrificed a million dollars. So over 10 years, he had 15,000 kids, right? So with 15,000 kids and multiple practitioners working in his practice, he sacrificed, you know, a million dollars a year. And it turned out to be one out of every dollar that they could have brought in by providing informed consent and allowing parents to say, no, I don't think, thank you. I don't want this vaccine or I don't want that one or I don't want to vaccinate at all. And, and so this counters the argument that pediatricians don't really make a lot of money or the practices don't make a lot of money because there's administrative fees. It's all hidden in the administration fees. So there's a huge amount of revenue in vaccines. And in reality, because not every pathogen requires 95% coverage by any means, right? Then they're administering an, an unnecessary medical procedure for profit. And that under any definition of medical ethics is wrong. So this paper just came out in the International Journal of Vaccine Theory, Research and, and, and Practice. Um, and it, it has a table in which the, all the pathogens on the pediatric schedule and some other, I threw in their Ebola and I threw in SARS-CoV-2, the R-naughts are there, the, the basic reproductive number, and the vaccine coverage needed for uh, herd immunity is there. And none of them are at 95%. Measles itself is 93%. And, you know, like I think the next one after that is maybe pertussis or something like that. It's at 80%. So if you hear people saying that you have to have 95% coverage, that's why we're taking away your exemptions. Or you have to have mandates because you have to have 95% coverage. Point out this table and say, then explain this from Dr. Lyonsweiler and Dr. Thomas, right? These are literature sourced, R sub naughts from which we get the vaccine coverage that's necessary for herd immunity. And then they'll say, well, okay, well, it's because the vaccines are, are becoming less effective. And the less effective it is, the higher the coverage you need. Okay, fine, then update your vaccines. They were told in 1950 that they had to update the measles vaccine. If you, they, they were told by objective scientists and, and people in medicine, it, given what we know about how fast the, the measles virus seems to change over time, that you have to update it every two years. If you don't, you're going to have a major measles outbreak among the vaccinated in 2022. And what happens in 2021? Lockdown. We're all socially isolated. Measles is a respiratory virus, so we're wearing masks. This was the year that we should have seen undeniable vaccine escape of the measles virus. So in terms of planning, I don't know if it works to their advantage, but man, that MMR vaccine just won't go away, right? It just won't go away. They won't break it up. Seen into that already in some of these measles outbreaks that we've seen that a lot of the people have already been vaccinated. I mean, that's that's in the Disneyland outbreak. Right. The PCR uh, analysis showed that th I think it was 38 percent of the measles cases were actually vaccine type. So the people had vaccine virus in them. So how, that, that's, that means they're kids because the adults typically don't get the MMR. So the kids were actually showing measles symptoms and they attributed the measles symptoms to the vaccine type that they could detect. But it was probably the wild type that was just go ahead. You're going to have measles, even though you're not vaccinated. That vaccine escape is something that we're already seeing with SARS-CoV-2. And even Fauci says that, yeah, look at this variant might escape the vaccine. The people that are talking about pandemic, well, they're saying, well, that's part of the plan. They're going to roll out these, these they're going to roll out the variants. The variants are real. So let me give you an example of this. But they're not something to be afraid of. The variants should never be something to be afraid of with a respiratory virus because 
the natural evolution of a respiratory virus that comes from one species into another goes as follows. It starts to become more easily replicated in that species and more easily transmitted, but less deadly because it takes out the people that, you know, or the animals in case of a, a, a herd of animals, it takes out the ones that are more susceptible to that type, right? So over time, this virus should become less and less lethal with the variants. Instead, what we have is this really super complex adaptive landscape of multiple selection factors. And in evolutionary biology, we think of, you know, okay, if, 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 you, if, if, it, if it makes sense to fly because you're able to survive and reproduce better because you can fly, then the ability to fly should increase in the population, right? Or whatever it is, breathing underwater, whatever the trait is, okay? So in viruses, it's no different. But now we have, okay, for, we have masks. That's a selection factor. Anything that can transmit differently because people are masking will evolution will find a way, right? Because we have um, uh, PCR tests. Well, the, the PCR tests actually target just 21 bases. So the, each, each, each primer, uh, 18 to 21 bases out of 29,000 bases in the genome. And so you might have three pairs of primers, uh, primer sets, that, that all work in, in pairs. So um, you have a total of uh, six primer sets. 8.5% of the mutations in the new variants that are known actually map to the primer locations in the PCR tests. If it, right? And you're talking about a very, very tiny, tiny amount of the 29,000 base pairs. So the selection coefficient for escaping the PCR because it leads to isolation, go home, you test a positive, because it leads to quarantine. It must be huge. The selection coefficient must be huge. And then, of course, we have the selection of vaccine, uh, sorry, virus types that can escape the human immune system, just the adaptive immune system. And then we now we have another selection factor of um, viruses that can escape the vaccine uh, type immune reaction. And, and one of the things that I think is, is uh, that the research that we're doing right now that's really most profound, and, and really happy to talk about it here is preliminary data, it's not peer reviewed, sure. okay? So take it with a grain of salt, it, it, is that we're supposed to have an innate immune response to respiratory viruses and practically almost all viruses and just deal with it with what's called a complement system in our innate immunity and have a mild reaction and not go deep into the antibodies adaptive responses. Um, and what's happening is, is because people that have TH2 skewed immune systems, they look at the viral infection, their immune system looks at the viral infection almost like a bacterial infection as opposed to a viral infection. You know, a Th1 reaction would be sufficient to deal with Th2 predominant immune reaction should be sufficient to deal with a, a, a virus, but instead of it, it's confused and it thinks it's dealing with a bacterium. It goes it goes deeper. It brings out more of a, a stronger immune response. And in fact, the people that do poorly with COVID nineteen they have too strong of an immune response, um, and so. It's almost as though the SARS-CoV-2, the people that get sick confuse viral infection with bacterial infection. And that could be because they're over-vaccinated, the hyperimmunization syndrome. 
where everything that looks like it's an infection, it, all it knows how to do is go for adaptive immunity as opposed to the milder, you know, innate immunity. Now, this may explain why kids don't get serious COVID-19 because they have, don't have a lifetime of being exposed to other pathogens. Mm. They don't have a lifetime of being exposed to vaccines yet. And that age-related correlation is still just a correlation. But, you know, the question is how do you, you can't unvaccinate a population, but you can enhance, truly enhance their immune reaction. Uh, not so it's a stronger immune reaction, so it's more a balanced immune reaction. And uh, I think that the, the next phase of public health will be focused on retraining the human population's immune system so that we can know how to properly respond to um, uh, viruses in a more mild manner than you know, so the larger percentage of us can survive. Oh, great. So, so I, this kind of brings me to a question I have now, and you brought this up when we were on the Union of the Unwanted with you as well, is that, um, and I know you can't give medical advice, but, but you said, I think it was like a regimen that you recommend for anyone to take that, whether it was, you know, to be exposed to, to, uh, COVID or if they were, if they had the vaccine, just something that could help your immune system in, in any case. Now, are, are you able to touch on well, that at all? Well, I understand what you're saying. I appreciate the tact with which you're asking the question. So and everything I'm saying tonight, not of its medical advice whatsoever. I'm not, I'm not medically trained. I'm not an expert in uh, treating people or prophylactic or anything like that. But I can tell you that the scientific research that I've seen that's peer reviewed um, and many, many people know this already, that the people that tend to do poorly in COVID-19 tend to have low D3, uh, you know, D vitamin uh, yes. in, 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 their, in their blood. And that's peer-reviewed studies. And so Dr. Brownstein out of Michigan has a protocol for treatment of coronavirus that involves high amounts of D3, high amounts of A. Uh, these are, this is a therapeutic regimen. It's not a treatment regimen, sure. but excuse me. Um, there are studies that show that selenium can help block viruses. Like there's studies that show um, zinc can help, right? And, and so I think it's wise, given that we live in a world with coronavirus, that we become much more aware of, let's say you're going to go to a large gathering, it would be polite, right, to try to be as healthy as you can when you get there. Whatever that means, you know, do your own research, look it up, look up the Brownstein protocol. It certainly doesn't mean take therapeutic doses of DNA, right? Those are too high for this. But if you, if you haven't had D3 in a couple of weeks uh, and you, it's the winter time and you've been inside all day, you're probably a sitting duck for any bad ill effects of having low D, right? And so, yeah, it, it makes sense to, to look at supplements and nutrition, exercise, uh, sunshine. It makes sense to have a healthy dose of, of normalcy. I think it's normal for the humans to have a diverse diet, to eat all the rainbow, you know, your vegetables, you know, um, and spend time with people that make you smile. That's, I think, the, you know, really important that you do that. Laughter is good. <laughs> That's what yeah. we're doing right now. For Absolutely. sure. Agreed. hundred percent. Wow. Well, wow. That was, 
That's that great. So much great information. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I definitely, I, I know we touched on IPAC. I really wanted to make sure that we shout that out. Um, maybe I want, hopefully encourage you to send me some links, some of that stuff, so we can uh, send some listeners on how they can support you. I definitely want to. Yeah, I want. I want to learn I wanna, too. I want to be able to definitely. destroy these people in the workplace, and run around <laughs> the mess, and not get well, fired. And not get fired. Yeah, yeah. Or while I'm getting fired, I'll have a good argument, right? <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, um, yeah. But but so, yeah, tell us a little bit about IPAC, how they can support you, um, your podcast, which is awesome. And uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, where we can find you. All right. So I, I, I'm absolutely shameless when it comes to plugging. So Great. I, I, no problem <laughs> with that. Uh, so IPAC is the Institute for Pure Applied Knowledge. It's a not-for-profit in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We're not a 501c3. We just, you know, put your money to good work. Okay. And uh, the best way to support IPAC is to go to ipaknowledge.org and try to find how to donate and do a small monthly donation. That small monthly donation is aggregate with other people's small monthly donation drives us forward for sure. Um, there are other options. There are specific projects you can look through the website. There's a lot of information there. Uh, if you want to know about the courses that we're offering, send an email to info at ipak-edu.org. I'll say it again, info at ipak-edu.org. And just to wet your whistle on that, we have a, a, an instructor who's preparing uh, for the public a course in the history of law in the West in the United States. And that's a prerequisite course to take constitutional law. And you'll also be able to take vaccine law and environmental law. Now, you're not going to get a law degree at IPAC-EDU. But you'll know your way around the Constitution. You'll know what the, the, the history. What I did was I challenged Rob to put together the narrative of where did our rights come from? What was the original historical conflict that caused us to be able to show up and vote or to interrupt a public meeting and say, I have a point of order clarification or whatever it was? You know, they almost arrested me for doing that. And Allegheny County Board of Health I ended up suing them. And I won, the, I won the case because I understood that that was my right. And so uh, we have courses in biology and there'll be courses in genetics. And uh, I'm putting together a course in virology. I have an instructor putting uh, virology 101 for the summer. I'll be teaching bioinformatics in, in, the, in the fall. I'll be teaching environmental toxicology. I'm really excited about that. Um, so we're just going to, you know, there's spreadsheet courses. There's courses on how to read and interpret a scientific study. So that email again is info at ipak-edu.org. It's an LLC and we're going to set the world on fire. The, 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 um, the podcast is Unbreaking Science. So if you look up hashtag unbreaking with a U, unbreaking science, uh, you'll find it on YouTube and you'll find it at WWDNYK Studios. I also have another podcast called Talk Nerdy to Me, where we really get down in the weeds and the science. And I just did one today um, on the, the effects of climate variation on butterfly populations in the Western United States. So just really cool stuff, quantum physics, you name it, we're going to do it. So um, if you have a hard time finding any of this, just check out Truthzilla because I'm going to spam them with uh, yeah. the links and uh, you guys are fantastic. So thank you so much yeah, for coming you. on. Yeah, really appreciate yeah. you being here. We're, we're gonna, I know the three of us are going to send it to all of our families. Oh, and Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we'll, hopefully our listeners will do the same. So. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Right. Thank you for staying up late with us. Appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you sure. so very much. Thank, All right. Thank you for having me. You guys rock on. Okay. Sure. You too. Yeah, hopefully we can do this again someday. All right. Good night.
Dude, he was so awesome, guys. Oh my god, that I was serious. That's that's going straight yes. to to my family. You know, they're going to hear this information. Sure, I mean, he does. He talks in a way where he almost loses me sometimes. I'm gonna have to go back and listen again. Yeah. He just like he's just he's like, slow the, and concise though. So yeah. I thought yeah. that was good because it at least allowed me to try to like grasp a picture in my mind of like what he was describing. But yeah, some sure. of it I was just sure. like, yeah. Wrong. One of the things one of the things I really want to get into with him is I've heard him on other interviews talking about like how. The, the fact checkers have a real hard time with him because they try and fact check him <laughs> and he's like, oh, 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 and like gets him. And I've heard, I guess he's had some pretty good victories over him where they've had to like, you know, correct their fact check or whatever, you know, because it's just like, and I want to get into the that. He's, that he's literally you to question yeah. them and yeah. not just shut you down. Yeah. He's literally fact checking the fact checkers. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so the uh, IPAC, is that right? Mm -hmm. So he's, clarify for me. So he's saying that we can take a constitutional law class, vaccine law class, through, environmental like, law just anybody like anybody, you yeah. know yeah. citizens standard citizens yep. Yep. we're okay. gonna we're gonna learn the law like, so we can take these fuckers down yeah yep. i, I want to do that i want to be able I do to too. Be those definitely. three in particular i was yeah. like uh, on board for yep. sure yep and then yeah. I, I guess those he said those are the prerequisites to like the other courses too or something but yeah i just yeah. i want to be able to like be able to start to to like just off the top of my head, like thrytosinopenia or whatever, dude. Like, what, what, what? You know, just like, just like spit it. Can right? that be the name of this yeah. episode? Uh, I don't, I yeah. don't know. Or if that's how you pronounce I don't know it, what I don't that know. Means. I just want to be able to, I, like, really I want to be like, yo, yo, yo. It sounded yo, good. Yo, immune, immunogenicity. What do you know about immunogenicity, huh? Epitopes? Yeah. All these dangerous epitopes floating around? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> wow. wow. So, epitopes. Yeah. yeah, that's what it is. Wow. Yeah. So, um, do we have anything to plug at the end? We're just saying it's the end. Join man. us on Telegram. Like that's all yeah, good. Come, yeah, come, come yeah, see yeah. us. Yeah, Telegram at Truezillapod. Um, mm -hmm. any thank yous, man? No, 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 no water in the well this week. So okay, anyway, well, yeah. I think that's. I think that was just a, another fantastic episode <sighs> in the bag, guys. Yeah, yeah, very, very exciting and uh, positively overwhelming information. Like yeah. I'm excited to go and like I, I really want to delve into his site there. That's definitely. Yeah. I, I want to go look up the the Brownstein uh, protocol protocol yeah. that he was speaking oh, of. Oh yeah, I mean, he spoke of the ingredients, but I think I think there was a specific protocol. And I I mean, for me, it's the people that I love that have taken this vaccine that I know are at danger of this right. uh, pathogenic priming. I know they are. Right. Mm -hmm. so. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I guess I should have said too. I I shouldn't. I kind of sound like an asshole. There's no water in the well. No thank yous this week. But no, we got a lot of thank yous. I, I knew. I knew you didn't every, mean that. Everybody supporting us on Rockfin and Patreon, dude. We love you guys. Like you're you're, you're helping us chug this little. Scott's train a dick. Along. If you guys didn't you know. know. Oh yeah. <laughs> you guys are just figuring that out. You guys are just figuring that out now. God. Come oh on. my gosh. Okay. Anyway. I'm gonna love crawl all you under guys. The table. You guys are awesome. Everybody, thank you so very much for sitting in with us. Please go and find Dr. Jack. Please go and listen to his podcast, yes. both of his podcasts. Just yeah. incredible information. Go and find him on IPAC and uh, check the show notes. Please link into everywhere that you yes. can. Thank go get learned up. Like, go, learn some stuff. Yeah. Get ready to drop terms like epitopes. That's the one. Epitopes. <laughs> So, uh, everybody, thank you so much for your ongoing love and support and encouragement. You reach out to us through uh, all of our different channels and mediums. Please continue to do so. Please go and find us on Rockfin. Yeah. We love all of you. And until next time, I am Megan, sitting here with Scott Ned. We wish all of you intellectual prosperity. Pew, 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 pew. Ding. Ding. Yeah. That was a weak ding. That was a weak ding. <laughs> that was a weak ding. That was all right.